on the mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Atlanta comedian Damon Sumner, whose debut album, I Know Who I Am, is out now. Damon became a father, a teacher, and a comedian in 2010, and he spent the last 12 years working up to this album. He did stand-up in China for about a year and a half, then came back to Atlanta determined on becoming one of the best in the scene. He and his wife, Katoya, have a podcast called Sum It Up with the Sumners. So listen to that podcast and buy I Know Who I Am today. But before you do that, listen to this episode with Damon Sumner. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's just five bucks a month. You can also follow Homebrewed Comedy on Facebook or go to homebrewedcomedy.com to see all of my dates. Thanks again. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Wings off inside, some peeling back my sunburned skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I, I hope they let me in. Thank you so much for doing the podcast, man. It's good to see you. Oh, man, I'm excited. I appreciate you having me on. No problem, man. Hey, how was Atlanta? Right now, because I we just got buried in like a foot of snow, and I assume you didn't get much of that. No, we got there were certain parts like more northern Georgia that got a sprinkle of snow, um, but I'm in the heart of the city, and it's cold. It's so cold that they shut down my kids' soccer games, and just because we were we're just not we're just not mentally and physically prepared in the south for cold cold weather. So it was like wind chills of ten. The high was like thirty. And I was like, you know what? Outdoors closed today. We're done with outside. So we got chili in the crock pot. I got on a hoodie. We're making it. I think that's my favorite part of the winter is just hoodie weather all the time. Absolutely. Oh, just give me some hoodie and a snuggle and like a beef stew or something like that. I'm good. <laughs> what was it like 10 years ago, something like that, when the Super Bowl was down in Atlanta and they had snow and I forget what the traffic was like. Like people oh. were in the cars for like 15 hours or something. Snowpocalypse. Yeah, yeah. They were leaving their cars on the highways. They were done. Is it just because you're so out of practice with like, not even like cleaning up, but like the preventative care for the roads? That's absolutely it. At that time specifically, like they didn't even have enough support, you know, machines and tires and snow plows in general in the city. So they were just fully unprepared. Like right now, just if I'm honest here, for my family, I'm a husband, I'm a dad of three. If like aliens pulled up, if zombies pulled up, we're not ready for an apocalypse right now. <laughs> you would catch me fully off guard. I don't have a shotgun. I've got no cellar. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't have a blanket. Uh, I <laughs> might, I might have a flashlight, probably somewhere with no batteries. That's exactly how Atlanta was a decade ago uh, when all that snow came down. Now we are, we do have more things now, and it has been better over the last few years. But we're still, we're still Southerners at heart. Well, if it makes you feel better, I don't think I have a working flashlight either, but I just think that's because I'm an irresponsible adult who has no responsibilities. <laughs> that's it. I respect that. And also the phone. The phone has, a, we got so much reliability on the phone. It's like, ah, I'm a, I was an app for that. Yeah. My dad, I had to help him out with something and he needed a flashlight. And I'm like, oh, hold on. I go to get my phone. He goes, no, no, I need your focus here. I'm like, no, really? I have a flashlight right here. You old man. On the phone. I'm not about to play uh, Wordle, Dad. I got you. <laughs> I would have to explain to my dad what that was, and that would take a time. <laughs> we just got my dad a smartphone. Oh. And he was resistant for a long time because he would sit at the 
dinner table. We'll be out to eat. And he'd be the only one trying to have a conversation. And my mom and my myself, my sister, we'd all be engrossed in our phones. My dad's like, oh, good conversation. Now he's got the smartphone and he doesn't say a word. No, he gets it completely. <laughs> I think I think once you figure out what works for you, like I'm sure your dad probably has a website or two, an app or two he's locked in on. Oh, yeah. And he's good, right? He's good. He's going to hang out with his friends. Maybe they're on Facebook, catching up about the 80s. Whatever he's going to be, that's where he is. And it's, you know, these phones, man, They once you find, because I, I use my phone for like four reasons, right? Yeah. I got 100 apps, but I use the same seven. And it's just, it's really, it's really bittersweet. And I say bittersweet because I think every generation had a thing whether it was rock and roll, whether it was the radio, like whatever the newspaper came out, whatever it was, it was something that was new and interesting that grabbed our attention. But every generation also has to wrestle with trying to fight to keep that human interaction going. So I'm glad your dad is on the bandwagon trying to fight. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 35. Okay. I'm 39. (laughs) And back when I was a kid, I I remember telling my sister, I had so many CDs Mm-hmm. And she's six years older than me, and she stopped remembering what songs were called, like what titles. Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to get that way. And then now we've got everything streaming. I haven't bought a CD in like six years, mm. and I don't know what the name of any track is. I'm like, I wonder if that was like just a, a symptom of aging and like priorities shifting. Like, oh, I don't have to remember the name of the song anymore. I have other things to worry about. <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a machine over here that's going to tell me what I need right. to know. I'll actually type into Google three words of the lyrics I do know and I'm like, "Oh yeah, you meant this hit from 1997, the cover band in Kauai." Yeah, that's what I meant. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant. That's exactly what I meant. There is something to be said too, man, about that CD era specifically because I think that was a golden era where like right they had this big old vinyl record that's too big, right? You had the cassette uh, but the CD with the ability to be portable, right? With the Walkman, the skipping, when that came out, that, it, was, it was a prime. It was, you still, and you still had the last era of the CD like case yep. with the tracks and then the booklet. Like that was a sweet spot. I just got a new car and I had to transport the old jewel cases from my CD player. And they've been in the car doors of my old car <laughs> probably a decade. And I'm pulling them out. I'm like, oh, I forgot I had this. And then they went right into a box that's going to be in my garage forever. forever. I'm never going to look at them again. I'm like, no, nope. I have I have Spotify and a smartphone and and a new car that can play everything on that. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, I, I don't know. It's kind of sad in a way. Like, I'm probably never going to buy another CD. And uh, it's just waving goodbye at my youth. Yeah, it's never. I, I don't even remember the last CD I bought or the last DVD I bought. Like, it's just like... yeah. Those those physical, like even my son, my son has a Nintendo Switch and he, he doesn't buy any physical games. They're all like in the e-store. No and kidding. so just that era of like having handheld uh, merchandise to a degree, that's, I mean, there's still, of course, a large world of that. But like there's a lot of things, music, art, the creative side, where it's like, oh, no, you can just download it or stream it or just whatever. Like we bought the other day, we wanted to, we, re- we really wanted to like go to the movies but like it was like, all right, the price for the movies and the gas, the way gas is now as we're yeah. recording this was like it just added up too fast. It was like, all right, let's just, if we can buy it for less, we're just going to stay home. And we bought it for like a third of the price and watch it on YouTube. And then we have it forever. I'm really bad. I think it's a great idea. 
Uh, and I'm surprised that more, maybe people do are doing that, but I am at the point where like, I've got so many DVDs and sure. TV series on DVDs. If my girlfriend and I want to watch something that I own, I look to see if it's streaming first. <laughs> so I don't have to get up. It's really pathetic. Like that is my, like the last vestige of my cardio. And oh, I'm just man. saying goodbye to it. How about how many, about how many DVDs you think you have? More than 600. Yeah, okay. like I, I did an inventory. I have a little bit of the OCD, and I, I did an inventory a while ago, and I think it was north of 600, mm. and then there are 40-plus TV shows that I have. Mm. I don't know if they're all completed, but close to it. So I have everything I need. I don't need to pay for streaming services, <laughs> but I do. But you do. I, and I watch, you know, I'm watching King of Queens. I'm like, I have that. You know, like I'm watching Seinfeld. I have that. It's really sad. It's that convenience, man. I get it. I 100% get it. And I, I feel like, you know, you're a few years older than me, but like there was that era, that DVD. I don't know what company got you, but they were sending me stuff in the mail. I was like, hey, man, you want these? You want 12 DVDs for a nickel? Yeah. You remember that? <laughs> well, I, I remember it. I wasn't on board because I got Netflix really late. I think it was oh, okay. 2016, maybe 15. Oh, okay. And so, so you, missed, you missed the Netflix disc era. Definitely. Like I had Columbia House back when I was a kid, but that was the last thing I went through the mail for yeah. for entertainment purposes. But yeah, when I got a smart TV in like 2015, I think I held out and then I got it. I'm like, oh, and then I saw Wonder Years was on it. And I think Rules of Engagement, yeah. Futurama. So I'm like, OK, I can I can get on board with this. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Netflix. I remember when we first got Netflix, that era was. It kind of came quick too. Like it came, came, you know, the black black bus was popping hard. It had its era, and then right there, Redbox popped up with the disc. Yeah, and Netflix came with the disc. I remember because I was at this time I probably was in college, and my my girlfriend, my now wife at the time, we were watching. Uh, you ever seen a show called Heroes? Yeah, like, yeah. And uh, the first two seasons before that writer strike in Heroes. Just two fantastic shows. That's just a side note. Uh, but but we go to Blockbuster. I remember this. We get out of the door. We go drive to Blockbuster, get like the next season of it on DVD. And then within like a year, Redbox takes off even more. Then Netflix turns up and everybody was like, all right, well, like Blockbuster, you have to keep up. And Blockbuster's like, yeah, no, we're actually, we're good. We're a powerhouse. We're going to stay like this. And then six months later, they were dead. And it's just, it's that convenience piece, man. We want it. We want it right here in my bed, in my bubble bath, while driving on a road trip. Can't beat it. I know. And I'm at the point now where I have so many of these streaming services that I'm asking friends, I'm begging them, hey, use my password because I can't possibly watch all of this stuff to get my money's worth. Yeah. So they're like, okay, what is it? We'll try. I'm like, Please do it. Just do it. I don't care what you watch. I don't care what you download. Whatever. Screw up the algorithm. I don't care. As long as you're using somebody get the money's worth. Somebody get the money's worth. Please. I'm I'm very cheap, but I'm also very lazy. And they're fighting each other right now. If you if you so I'm a I'm a ranker here and I like a good list. How many streamers you have? Two. Uh, No, I've got let's see. I I just really started getting into Paramount Plus. Okay. Got that, Netflix, Hulu, Peacock. Yeah, HBO Spotify Max. too. Yeah, HBO Max. You got uh, uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah, I do, and I don't. I don't know how to use it. All right, so you got. I, so like, you got the big six. It's bad. Yeah, <laughs> you got the big six. Now, if you're giving me your top three as far as like 
if I'm sitting down, I got a free Sunday yeah. and I, I want to watch, what are your, what, are, what three are you going to choose first to look into? I'm intrigued. Well, probably. And this just goes back to the OCD thing, but probably Please. Hulu. Okay. Because I've got Hulu live and I have a DVR. So I'll try to watch the stuff that I've got in the DVR so I can clear yeah. that. Sure. But as far as man, like I just started watching the Jim Gaffigan show on Paramount plus and it's great. Mm. Uh, I used to watch it on TV land. I'm like mm-hmm. the only person who ever watched a show on TV land. God, I don't know, but I'm old school. I, I went back and I watched Punky Brewster on oh, Peacock and King of Queens on Peacock. Yeah. Yeah. I'm watching Seinfeld. I don't know. It, it's a tough one. Yeah. I would say the default would be Netflix, but honestly, like lately I barely watch that. I watch yeah. it for Seinfeld now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I used to watch that for the office and God, I don't know. I really don't know. I would say Hulu. I guess. Hulu's your number one. And I get that, especially for DVR. It's interesting because I was asking this question to a few uh, comics here in Atlanta, and they let this be a convo because, of course, you know, depending on what you want and interest, yada, yada. But take that aside, right, pound for pound, if you're looking for stand-up comedy, volume-wise, it's still clearly Netflix in that category. One of my favorites right now is HBO Max because it just has uh, a lot of dope movies that I've been wanting to watch and just haven't gotten around to, and so it's there. But... I will say I just got, um, shout out to the pressure of Twitter. I just got Peacock. I'm doing like a trial. I've heard nothing but good things about Peacock. And so I just got the trial. And so I'm looking forward to like several shows. I'm going to try to binge over these next 30 days. And based off what I'm hearing, Peacock got some heat. It's got some heat, like old stuff and like some new content they're creating. Yeah. Peacock is weird for me because I always think of that as an NBC streaming service and it kind of is but it's got like everything from their studios so like i believe everybody Loves raymond is on that and king of queens is a cbs product right and that's on there so it's got to be the, the distribution studios or kind of like hbo max has fresh prince of bel-air and friends right right, like, right. how do you get friends and fresh prince when they're nbc shows yeah they should be on peacock like it confuses the hell out of me and that is true but yeah, I, love I, know, I know um HBO Max had bought like a, or partnered with Cartoon Network, AMC, and some other people. But specifically, I mean, when you think about sitcoms in the golden era in the 90s, right? Friends was an NBC sitcom. Yeah. How do you get that? What? Well, how, how do you how do you let that get away? And I know HBO Max, I think, paid yeah. $100 million. And I guess that's Ooh. how you get it. That's how you get it. Yeah. I just, but the one that, like, I don't know how you let Fresh Prince go to HBO Max when that's, You've got Punky Brewster on Peacock. You've got The Office. I'm like, you have the nostalgia. Yeah, there, yeah. Some of the current stuff. But That's Fresh crazy. Prince Forever, I don't know if you watched that when you were growing up. Oh, yeah. Like, for me, that was that was probably my favorite show of all time for like a three or four year window. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it just was so incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't anywhere. Like, I, I couldn't find the, I couldn't find all six seasons mm-hmm. on DVD anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was like a, I got season one, and then there was like a best of. And like, <laughs> when you have all that together, how do you let that go to another network? Yeah, no, that's crazy. You know, Fresh Prince is definitely my. It's because I, my wife and I, she's like, "Stop making lists." I, whenever <laughs> I make lists, <laughs> that's how you got like, her. You made a list. <laughs> so I love, I love dope television, and I had to. I think it just makes sense to be respectful to all the great television to break it up like comedy and like drama because it's yeah. too, it's too much. If I'm doing comedy and drama, Fresh Prince is probably in my top 10. So much nostalgia there. And what's interesting about going back and rewatching stuff, 
is how much you miss. Like, cause you know, it was appointment TV. Like you had to be there type of thing. And like, if I think about Fresh Prince now, to be honest, that last season, last maybe two seasons, like where they're getting older and graduated and like, here comes the second at the end. Like it's real kind of, it's kind of shaky. You know what? Even be honest, that first season, definitely shaky when they were in that other house, that other set. Yeah. You remember that? Um, so anyway, all that to say, shout out, shout out to anybody grabbing the uh, the powerhouses, HBO Max for that. But I've heard all that to say, I, I'm excited to check out Peacock. They got some dope stuff over there. No, I think you'll like it a lot. And it's, <laughs> I've got the ad free because I just don't like ads. So, or, you know, that extra $4 in my account. But it's, it? it's solid. It's a good purchase. Do you have a uh, Disney Plus? I do, yeah, I do. I do. I forgot about that one. I got it all. Mike got it all. Yeah, man. I, I go to bed watching The Simpsons. So <laughs> Disney Plus has that. I have 18 seasons of The Simpsons in my on my shelf. In your DVD. Yeah. Yeah. I have a problem. A lot of them, actually. It's bad. And like it's funny because I'll watch like I'll watch them kind of on random, but I only choose like the first 15 seasons. Mm. So, like, I could absolutely walk upstairs. And hit play all, and I'd be fine. Oh, my I'm not doing that. Well, what do you have for me? You got him in like a, a bookcase? My dad, actually, he's a carpenter. He okay. made, I've got, I think, four bookshelves. Mm. And he's, it's like, I got one right here. One, two, three. There's six levels in each. So there's six shelves. Mm. So I can probably fit about 40 on each shelf. So mm. the, there are three that are completely full. And then one is, it's got almost one shelf full. So it's, it's a problem for sure. And then I've I've got DVDs like collections on top of those shelves. So Goodness. it's yeah, I've got I don't wanna I should, probably should, but for my sanity, I should not add up how much money I think I spent on them. But I've got three CD books in my garage right now, and it's just so much don't do that to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about you though. When did you start doing comedy? I started comedy in 2010. 2010 was one of the craziest years of my life. Um, in 2010, I started stand-up, I hey, became a father, and I started my teaching career all in wow. the same year. In which order? Uh, that's a great question. So I had I had uh, my kid, I had my, my son, my oldest, in January of 2010. Um, and then I started teaching in August, like full-time uh, classroom teaching, August of 2010. And stand-up comes in October of 2010. Yeah. So... You waited a little bit. You waited like like what ten months, eight months to figure out. Okay, well, I have I have my life in order now. Let me get on stage and screw it up. <laughs> well, listen, stand up wasn't even a part of the plan. It came literally out of nowhere for sure. What made you get on stage? Uh, I mean, well, uh, the the short story is I was in Atlanta. My wife and I had moved to Atlanta after college, wanted an adventure, and you know I'm coming up with some funny friends. We're having a good time, and a friend. Unfortunately, I cannot remember their name. He says, hey, man, it's me and another great comic, David Perdue, one of my best friends here in the city. And he says, man, y'all are hilarious. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up? Now, I had never thought about doing stand-up. Stand-up wasn't really part of my life growing up. You know, a lot of times you talk to comedians, and for many of them, they'll have that origin story of like, you know, uh, my mom was listening to Carlin Records, or my dad had prior on, or whatever the case may be. I didn't have any of that going on. Uh, I came from a pretty sheltered family. So we weren't going to have any of that Kings of Comedy uh, cussing in my house. You understand? And so, you know, I got Martin and Fresh Prince and Jamie Foxx and all the sitcoms 
And then that's how I got my comedy. And then just cutting up with my friends and my brothers. Right. So stand up wasn't even a thing in my world. Fast forward, graduate college, get married, move to Atlanta. We're cutting up. Literally, they throw out that one question. Mike, I promise you, I don't know if I would be a stand-up comedian today without that one question, because I didn't think it was a thing. I think I would probably be right now an assistant principal with 20 keys right now, just holding it down. <laughs> but yeah, me and David, we said, yeah, let's try it. We signed up for an open mic here at the Lapin School Lounge, October 27, 2010. And honestly, the rest is history, man. Did you feel at home when you got on stage the first time? Not even a question. Okay. It was, I was like, oh, this is it. This is this is it. Because I have went from high school, four years of high school and four years of college. So eight years, my dream job was to be a sports reporter, sports anchor, ESPN yeah. Sports right. Center, me and Scott Van Pelt. That's what I wanted in my life. You know, and I went through the whole I did, you know, college TV, college radio. I did all that. And then the recession hits 0809, moved to Atlanta. Nobody's hiring entry level journalists. And then so I've got to take. Uh, another job I had in college, post-college, where I was working essentially with kids and facilities where they had been taken from their homes, abuse and neglect. Um, And I was like, I can't. I've got a baby on the way. I can't be wrestling 15-year-old girls for $12 an hour. I got to get my life together. And uh, one of the employees there was like, yo, you ever thought about teaching? And, you know, I like kids and I had I loved history. So I was like, I'll look into it. I need something. So literally all of this in 2010 is spiraling and kind of concocting together here where I've got this move to this new city. I'm getting ready to become I'm leveling up as a man, if you will. Um, I'm trying to get out of this job and get a career going to provide for my family. And then this random question comes out of nowhere. I think he asked me that question. You ever thought about doing stand up? At the earliest, it was June. At the latest, it was August. I think it was like July, August. And I had just like a month and a half, two months to write jokes, whatever that. Uh, And then my family and friends were there. First set, good times. Ha ha. Next three months, I bombed for three straight months. No laughs. But I was like, oh, this is this is what I'm supposed to do. That's what I always tell people. Like, like the first time I went on stage, I think I did pretty well. And the second time I did great. And third time, I bombed horribly, <laughs> but I wanted to go back on stage. Yeah, like, that's when I knew. Okay, this is for me. Yeah, and, you know, it's absolutely debatable. Everybody else probably thinks, eh, maybe we should give it up, but I'm okay now. But I, I was in love with it. Yeah, and I think, I think to an extent, you have to be in love with it to give it a real go because yeah, because those so give it a, are yeah. horrible. Yes. Oh, the the, the give it a go part. And being all in, like, because you don't know, like, uh, you don't know the culture of stand-up. You don't know the requirements. Like, if you really want this, it takes so much commitment to the craft. It takes so much time and energy and effort to get into the shows, to the waiting before the show, to waiting after the show, to waiting towards your spot, right? To driving for $8 and some chicken nuggets to do three minutes in an unknown town. Like there's so much goes into it. The friendships begin to dwindle a little bit. Like there's a lot that goes into it that you don't know the first time you sign up for an open mic, right? You're just like, oh, marquee light. I saw somebody funny on Comedy Central. I think I'm pretty funny in my friend group. Let's jump into it. And then you'll look up six months later, you've gained 40 pounds because you emotionally eat after every time you bomb. And you're like, well, this is my life now. Well, for me, it's like I gained weight too. I probably, I don't know. I don't, again, I don't want to do all the math, but I, I would drink a little bit 
to help the bar. And you know, I got a joke about it. But it's like it really when you're a comedian, you go there to support the bar. Mm-hmm. It's letting you do this open mic mm-hmm. or letting you put on this free show. Right. Like, OK, well, you know, if we only get 18 people here, well, maybe I'll buy dinner and a couple drinks to help, yeah. you know, get us back there. Yeah. And, but there's a lot of a lot of that stuff goes into it. And I do think a lot of people, especially when they're very new, don't really and myself included, don't understand that there is a game to be played. And it's like, you have to drive, you have to wait, you have to be frustrated, you have to get mad, you have to be bitter and jaded a little <laughs> bit, because everybody comes in thinking they're funnier than they yep. are. Yeah. And you just have to wait in line at times. The waiting in line and walking around with the humility, those are some of the most important intangible skills there is, like, because you already have to come in with a level of pride and delusion that you can get on stage and make strangers laugh, right? There's already a level of that, whether you, and at this moment, I had never been, like the from the time I, I signed up for my first mic, I had never been in a comedy club. Like that, that's off top already, like unknown. So in the midst of those two months to prepare, I went to a few comedy clubs in the city just to kind of watch and see and get a feel what I was walking myself into because, there is one thing, as I think I would assume anybody would know, there's one thing to make your friends and your family laugh, be at the barbershop, be at a cookout, whatever. You got people crying in tears. It is completely different to have somebody pay for a babysitter, parking, two drink minimum, put on a nice shirt, sit in a stuffy seat, sit for 90 minutes, 30 minutes, it started late. And then you come on stage with four minutes to go and expect to make them. Those are two different atmospheres. Um, And so you already kind of have to have this mindset of, oh, I can do it. You're already, you're you're already partially crazy just thinking about it. Well, then, especially when you're new, you go on stage and you're thinking, oh, well, my friend's family love me. They laughed at this story. Everybody else laughed too. They don't know the characters in your story at all. So, and they don't know you. So it's like the reason, part of the reason your friends and family are laughing so much is because they have the history of you because they like you in general. Yeah. You're going in front of strangers who don't give a shit about you. At especially all. at an open mic. Like <sighs> we've already seen 13 people just like you. Like, what are you doing? It sounds insane when we talk about it out loud, Mike. It sounds insane. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you brought up a good point where that delusion is so important. Yeah. Because if you're not loaded with delusion, especially in your first three, six, you know, a year, uh, I mean you're not going to keep going because yeah. you need, you're, you're going to get laughs, but the delusion is going to fill in those gaps. Where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's going to make that the bare 30 seconds tolerable. Like, no, no, they were laughing. Probably not, but your brain's <laughs> going to play tricks on you to keep you going because yeah. that's what you want to do. I would much rather people. And, you know, the longer you do it, the more people you'll see kind of fall by the wayside and transition and fade out of it, which is, which is all good and well. But like the sooner, if you're thinking about, if you listen to this, you're thinking about doing stand up, go hard and do it like, and commit to it. And then like, if you want to keep it going, but if like set a time, all right, I'm gonna give it hard six months. I'm gonna give it hard, whatever. And then if you're like, yeah, this ain't really it. Get out, get out. I see so many, especially in Atlanta, man. I see so many comics, people who do stand up, like just begrudging. And this is any industry, right? You go to education. There's that jaded teacher of 22 years. There's the post office worker who hates getting like any industry. It doesn't matter. But like with stand up, 
you're not getting paid well. You, you know what I'm saying? Like more times than not, especially if you're not great, a headliner, et cetera, et cetera. So you're not getting paid well. You could be sleeping. You could be resting. You could be saving money, saving gas, saving subway fares. There's so many other things you could do uh, or not do. So I'm like, yo, man, hey, should I, what should I do? I'm like, go hard, bro. Like, go get it, ma'am. But once you kind of figure out this ain't for you, there is absolutely nothing wrong saying I tried it. I'm out and be free. But I see too many times people just keep going. I'm like, why? You don't have to. Right. And you're you're miserable right now. Yes. Like, I think the pandemic was really good for that reason alone. It's oh, like, yeah. Like, I think it helped people reprioritize what they really want in yep. life. And yeah, I'm sad that some people didn't come back. Mm-hmm. Also, if their life is better now without stand-up, good for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's several comics I've always watched seeing in the scene. You know, they always have kind of like seemingly enjoyed it. But I think, yeah, that year, year and a half, two years, depending on, you know, how they kind of ran it. They, that, that reprioritizing, I think you hit it on the head, figuring out, oh, man, this is what my life can look like with more time, more money, more energy. Oh, man, I forgot some of these friends, some of these relationships got rekindled. And then, you know, the world was like, or specifically America was like, all right, we're going to we're going to kind of get back to some things and start some new stuff. And people were like, yeah, actually, I, I think I'm good. I, I don't think I need to worry about trying to find 40 chairs to put into this basement for this 945 show. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When did you feel like this was for you? I mean, I know you, you felt home right away, but like, you mm. know, you're going through that, that struggle. Mm-hmm. At what point did you feel things started to change in your direction? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the biggest pieces of my story is the fact that I went to China. And um, in China, I did stand up over there with a great group, Kung Fu Comedy Club. And I think, I think so like I said, I felt at home at the, the for day one, right, on the uh, first show. But I think that moment where I put my flag in the sand was I had the, the great opportunity to go, this is probably year three now, I had a chance to go co-headline a show in Beijing. And it was this little, small, little Beijing comedy club. And, you know, it's just about like, I don't know, 60, 70 people in there and it's a small room and the stars might just align that night. It was first off, the weather was dope. I'm in Beijing, already dope to just be in a different continent, doing what you love. It's a light snow, not where you're at right now, but just a light Christmas story snow. So that's cool. The room is packed. Every comic is crushing. I go up, right? This is the first time I've got headliner by my name on a poster so that's already dope i go up everything hits the crowd's crazy and then i get that feedback you know that post show that post show love that post show it'll fill your bucket and (laughs) i just got so much love man and appreciation from the people i remember walking in the snow to the subway that night and i was like this moment all of this i know every day is not going to be like this but having a chance to earn and work towards this type of moment, this is what I want to do. And I just, I just, I think about that. I think about that night uh, probably every year, at least once. Shout out to Facebook memories. Because it was, I think it was where it wasn't just this, oh, I think I'm good at it. Or my friends and family are in the crowd. I was like, oh, no, I, I think I can make this where I can take care of my family with this. 
I think I can make this where I'm traveling with this, where I'm becoming a beast at this. You know what I'm saying? And it was it was that that show right there in Beijing that I was like, okay, no, for real, let's go hard. Now, what led you to Beijing? Yeah, yeah. So uh, teaching, teaching. You know, I was teaching, and um, I heard somebody say, you know. You ever thought about teaching abroad? <laughs> Literally, my life is about people asking me questions. <laughs> uh, like, like, yo, you ever thought about teaching abroad? I hadn't. My wife and I, you know, we're early 20s. We've got a kid and we still, you know, still to this day, but definitely then it was like, man, we want to venture. And so we were able to get paid and go see the world, basically. So I went over there, taught uh, for a year and a half with Disney English. And it was dope. We were in Shanghai. We were based in Shanghai. And then I got a chance to travel around with that Kung Fu Comedy Club um, team around China a little bit. And one of the greatest, greatest times of my life. Do you miss China? I do miss China. I I, I so strongly want to go back because I only had my son. My son was two and a half to like almost four there. I got two other kids now. And I would just love to like be able to have the opportunity that my career could take us around the world um, and see a little bit. And I still have, you know, good connections. So it's just trying to figure that out. Now, where'd you go to college? I went to college. So I'm originally from Louisiana. Yeah. And I went to college at the University of North Texas. Okay. In Denton. Yeah, about an hour from Dallas. You studied broadcasting, journalism, mix of journalism, sports journalism. Yeah, I was all in, man. It was, I thought it was going to be me and Stuart Scott, man. Well, I'm the same way. I went to Mansfield in Pennsylvania and studied broadcasting and journalism. Mm-hmm. And I had an interview at Bristol and I mm. didn't get it. Uh, I think it was probably for the good, mm. but yeah, I wanted to be, I didn't know if I wanted to be on sports center when I was growing up, I definitely did. And then I started doing print journalism mm. and I really liked seeing my name in print Yeah, and it was that easy. So I didn't know where I wanted to go, but Oh my God, I wanted to work at ESPN in the worst way. The worst way. I grew up with Dan Patrick and Keith. Yeah. Old- yeah. Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen. Yeah. Had come in to kind of, not replace them, but sure. they were the they were the cool kids. Yeah, yeah. And Scott Van Pelt was there. I think Dan Patrick got him from the Golf Channel. Mm. But yeah, I, so I missed out on a little bit of Scott Van Pelt. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I want to desperately work at ESPN. That primetime sports center, man, where you watch two hours back to back the same so show. <laughs> it was like the next morning. You watched it six o'clock to seven or seven to eight. Whenever the bus came, you saw at least an hour. And what I hate about, I don't know, I, it's probably not fair for me to judge now because I don't watch sports on it anymore. Mm. But I started drifting away when they stopped giving all the highlights to all the teams. And yeah, like, no, yeah. it, you drifted too far into, I guess it was like the, the Tebow era. Mm. Where it went more toward debate on everything. Mm. And I was like, I can't get into it anymore. Uh, it was sad. Like I didn't want to see, you know, Thrasher's highlights, but I wanted them to be included. Yeah, like, yeah. I just felt bad. Like, well, <laughs> I just know as a Mets fan, I'm like, well, I want to know the score. Like, show yeah. me the scores at least. Yeah, it was. It was 55 minutes of highlights. Now you yeah. might get 25. You might. Yeah. So I mean, was it difficult for you to give up on that, or was it just hey, teaching's here, and you know, you can do it. <laughs> It, it was and it wasn't, um, you know, I had because I went to a uh, my high school had a magnet program for like journalism, broadcasting. So I had got my feet wet in four years, one major. I was all in my senior year had began to start the crumble. My senior year, I had to do more um, like just news in general. Yeah. And I didn't love that, especially as like a producer and the director of our college station. Um, so that was one piece of the puzzle. And then by like professor 
like just hit me with a gut punch of reality. It was like, like you do know, like you're not going to come into a small market and be the man of the sports report. He was like, no, they're going to send you out to this little random story. They're going to go do this court case. And yeah, like you're going to be all over the place. Schoolwork, and man. just at 21, I didn't like that. And so, you know, when we move, I did. And this, I love this old sounding sentence, but I hit the pavement and was giving my DVD reel out yeah. to new stations. Like I was putting in the work, but I had kind of already begun to like lose that luster that I had about it, knowing what I knew now or knew then. And so when I kept getting rejections and nobody was hiring in that time, I felt I had a piece about it. So I had a piece about it. And then teaching came along and I felt good about that. So it was it thankfully didn't like I didn't have any like emotional baggage there. I was just able to transition from one thing I was hoping to get into to something that literally until I went full time years later, something that gave me that stability and foundation in teaching. Yeah, I was told, all right, get ready to cover school board meetings and things like that. And I'm like in town halls. I was like, I don't want to do that. And I was lucky enough uh, in my hometown newspaper in Binghamton. uh, I got a job at, wow, they called a sports clerk where you just go go in there and you collect box scores information Mm -hmm. from high school games. And And then the, (laughs) I got in there at like late July, early August. So my first two weeks I put in sports schedules from like high school games. I'm like, there is no more monotonous chore that and it felt like you were so far removed from anything you learned in yeah. journalism class. You're like nobody told me it was going to be data entry. Nobody. And it was just awful. Then I got a job as a sports reporter at a small town in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, where I had to do everything. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know I had to do layout and writing and yeah. everything. I was like, yeah. oh wow, this is a lot more work. And then scheduling and yeah. like okay, and then you kind of adjust to it. But yeah, it's never, never all that glamorous. Never. Even with stand-up, there's never all that glamorous. No. Like, if you're getting into stand-up expecting to sell out stadiums, like, I appreciate your ambition. But if you think that is going to happen, one, for 99% of comedians, you're fooling yourself. And so when you get into it, you're like, yeah, man, how long does it take to get to headliner? How much does it take to start making money? When you start asking those questions, how much does it start making money and hit the road? It's like, all right, I think we're going to put you down here at the data entry level. You're going to put in some schedules. (laughs) You're going to do three minutes, three minutes, three minutes, three minutes, three minutes, uh, get bumped, get bumped um, and things of that nature. There is this reality check that you have to walk with humility in. Right. Because if I come in and I'm the funniest guy, I've been the funniest dude, funniest person, funniest girl, whatever, since fourth grade. And everybody loves me and I kill it wherever I go. And you get on that stage. And if you don't walk with humility, you're going to think that every crowd's trash. You're going to think, oh, they don't get me. You're going you're gonna to start just making up nonsense in your head and they're already done. There has to be a level of humility um, with the ambition. It's got to be a good mix to really to push forward with it. I remember working with a guy and very briefly, but he got mad publicly online. He, he made like Facebook live videos, mm. trashing comedians for telling the same jokes at different places. And I'm like, yeah, that's what a comedian is. I was <laughs> like, they're, they're finding their audience. They're going to mm. them. Yeah. doing jokes they've rehearsed at open mics. And I'm like, you, you're 10 months in, you just don't get it yet. And no, like and to go public on that, it's like, okay, buddy, relax a little bit. Like take a step back. I, I, I have all, let me put my caveat. I have so much respect for all creatives, all artists, period. Also it's really intriguing 
nationally, culturally, how like stand up, like, I don't know if we're, they, we put stand up on a higher pedestal or what, but there's something about where people think, or maybe it's because everybody feel like they can make everybody laugh. Okay. I can make my coworkers laugh. I can make my uncle laugh. So they feel like maybe they could do it more because like poets aren't writing new poems every day. No. They're going to different shows. Musicians definitely aren't writing new songs every time, but you don't see that. But something interesting about stand-up comedy specifically, where they're like, yeah, I heard that, I heard that joke. You know, you hosted two months ago at the same comedy club. I heard that joke. Well, one, thanks for coming out. And yeah, you will. I'm still, I'm working it. I'm still fine-tuned. And even if I'm not working it and I'm on cruise control. It's still a dope show. It's still a dope joke. So I don't care if you know it. Say it in your head. It's really interesting how stand-up kind of looks and feels culturally. Also, you heard that joke. The other 100 people didn't hear the joke. Didn't hear it. So blame them. If they had all come to the show two months ago, I'd have new material. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm curious about this. I assume you have public speaking background in high school and college. Uh, not at all. With, no, not really. Okay, not not, not even with the TV stuff. Mm-mm. Okay, so you but you got the writing, and now you're teaching. Yeah. So when you have that experience, does that do you think that made going into stand up a little bit easier for you? That's a good question. I think so. You know, being in front of people, right, holding attention, being engaging. I think, uh, especially storytelling, which is kind of what I'm most I've been right. working more on uh, with stand up. Is something that from the sports to teaching, I think they, they, you know, they have similar skill sets to a degree. So I think those play a part. I mean, what is it? I don't know what it is now. Maybe it's, it's still probably top three, death, public speaking, right? The biggest fears yeah. of a human being. So standing in front of your peers, standing in front of strangers is a skill by itself. So I do think, yeah, those definitely played a part in it. And then when I get a chance to like, like, cause I'm teaching now again, just, you know, in the midst of everything with the pandemic. There's that element of standing up, eyes are on you, lights are on, and performing. So there's there's something there for sure. What do you teach? I mean, your history, but what level? Uh, well, this year specifically, when I came back, I'm doing all grades, fifth and sixth. Okay. Does that I mean, make it... all, all subjects, all subjects. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Does that make it easier to go from, from teaching, what, essentially 11 and 12-year-olds to go in and telling jokes to people at the bar or at the club who probably act like they're 11 and 12? <laughs> there's, de- there's definitely a uh, comparison because you know like i was trying to like throw in jokes with the kids and kids they're either too cool or they're too silly so there is this line of trying to figure out how to dance with that and they'll try to oh oh mr so-and-so or whatever the case may be same thing with the crowd though like you come in somebody got everybody got their hands folded or they had a bad day at work or they just got into an argument with their boo you know what i'm saying and they'll come in that route or they'll come in wasted and too silly and off track. And I'm like, hey, come on, focus back, focus back. Eyes on me, eyes on me. Um, and so there is this element of wrangling human beings that ties into both of them. That has to play to your strength, though. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. I think there's something just about, you know, I'm pretty sure it was Bernie Mac um, who said, um, I forgot, I'm butchering, but he was like, you know, some people can be funny, but can you be interesting? And I think, um, you know, as a teacher, like there's so much any subject that a kid doesn't like, they're already mentally out. But if I could take something that you don't really care about and make it interesting, like, you know, go back to being school, like, all right, I don't care about fractions. 
Oh, but she brought M&Ms into the room. I'm interested. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. It's like, all right, well, I'm 57. This comic's 28. But they told a funny, relatable story about a crazy relative. Oh, that's interesting. Guy can relate. So there, there are these commonalities that I think for all people, which going back to China, this universality of comedy, this universality of uh, one, we as humans have a lot of things that are uh, the same, right? We have a lot of commonalities. Um, and then another quote from my uh, goat, Chris Rock. Chris Rock is my favorite comic of all time. He says something I think about all the time. Uh, when he was coming up, he said, uh, I wanted my act to be so strong, so good that I want to be able to kill at the Apollo. But then I also want to be able to kill at Carnegie Hall with the same act, same me, same originality, same authenticity. And especially when I was over there and now being back here and tying into even the classroom and all these things come together to me is because I want to have this universal authenticity about myself. So wherever I go, whenever I stand up on my own two flat feet, I can be interesting. I can be engaging. Did you watch the I think it was A&E had a documentary on Bring the Pain. No, I need to find this. Look it up. It's great. It's him talking about the hour. Oh, my goodness. It was supposed to be a half an hour. And HBO came to him because the whole process was, and I could be screwing up the timeline, too. I love Chris Rock. And I think he had just gotten fired from SNL Mm -hmm. or not hired or rehired. And then he did like five or six episodes of In Living Color. And then he was going to Mike's and clubs around New York working on this act. Somebody saw him from HBO and like, hey, we'd like to do a half hour with you. So he starts working on this half hour. He gets it pretty much done. Another executive from HBO sees him, says, oh, okay, cool. We want an hour. He goes, well, I only have a half an hour. Like, well, write another half hour. Mm. And Wanda Sykes was talking about how everybody was watching Chris Rock work this hour. Mm. And it's, it's arguably one of the best specials ever. Oh, yeah. And she saw it and she goes, well, what's the point of doing stand-up anymore? Like, <laughs> we can't come close to this like we might as well just quit and it's a really cool i've got to find it. It, it, it i'm almost positive it's any i don't know what it's called i assume it's chris rock bring the pain or something like that yeah 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 but it, oh man that that just made my weekend right there that is I already got some ice cream and cookies in the in the house for later i was like i don't know what i'm watching tonight uh now i do do it i'm telling you it's it's great oh who, who else did you watch growing up well, I didn't watch I didn't watch stand up growing up. Oh, that's right. That's right. You were yeah, like it, it was such a it came out of so left field. Like I like I don't know. It's like you know, it's it's, it's hindsight now, but like I honestly do not know if that guy had not asked me that question. I wasn't thinking about it. It wasn't I had never been in a comic club. I wasn't watching late night sets with Leno and right. Letterman. That wasn't my world. So did you he asked you that question and you just, you're like, okay, well, who else is funny? Did you go back and discover Chris Rock at that point? Well, I saw I'm, I'm a student. I'm a student of, of like whatever, whatever I get into, I'm a student. So when I fell in love with stand up, I just dove head first, all in craft. Now, if I'm being more accurate, I think probably when I got to college and I had a little bit of cable, there probably was some sprinklings then. I had a little more freedom than my house growing up. But again, still, it's you don't go from zero to 100 just because you got cable in college. You know what I mean? Because even then, the accessibility wasn't what it is now you know, 20 years later, earlier, whatever. So, but yeah, I think, I think the first, man, I really have to think about, I think one of the, I'll tell you this, the two first specials I remember specifically 
laughing to tears. I ran across both of them, ran me on HBO. Jamie Foxx, one of the most underrated human beings. He's great. <laughs> Ridiculous. He has a special called I Might Need Security. And I was in tears in the first five minutes. It is, it is just bananas. And then I saw, didn't know who she was, Ellen DeGeneres special on HBO. Yeah. And I was in tears as well. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, we're finna. And I was all in. And that just revved up my craft and study, become a student and historian of it. And then I read this dope book, The Comedians, um, which kind of breaks the, the chronological order of how stand up from vaudeville to just all the way then starts to now. So I just dove head in once I got into it. If you go back and look at the cast from A Living Color, it is incredible. It's ridiculous. I mean, when you think about it, Jamie Foxx oh. might be the most talented person on that <laughs> cast. And like, he's not the guy I think about when I think of In yeah, Color. You don't? Not at all. I mean, like, I think Jim Carrey, Damon Waynes, Keenan Ivory Waynes, yep. Tommy Davidson, yep. and then David Allen Greer, and then Jamie Foxx. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's like, oh, this it's, guy's got an Oscar, and he's, he's I got mean, a Grammy. He's got everything but, I think, a Tony. Yeah. I think he's almost like the E-Guide or whatever. I mean, it's, it was so much. It was like the Monstars. Yep. Yeah. That's a great comparison. <laughs> no, it, it's just, and then... What's funny to me is like Damon Wayne's lasted a year on SNL and Jim Carrey couldn't get hired there. And it's like, okay. And Keenan Ivory's like, cool, come on board. Got and it. We'll, I mean, some of those skits are just so timeless. So timeless. I mean, they had that whole, you know, the Super Bowl. They did did a, a show during the Super Bowl and broke records. Like just top notch, top notch sketch. When do you think you found your voice? Uh, yes. One of my favorite questions because <laughs> I, because I really, I really have to ponder on that. And I think for me, what it was, it was, so I do a year and a half in China. Yep. We moved back to Texas um, to get back on my feet. We live with the in-laws. We both, my wife and I both like, yeah, we ain't living in Texas. <laughs> so, so we're like, all right, let's go back to the A, man. Atlanta becomes so I moved back July of 2015. And I remember coming back to the scene thinking two things. One you know, I was kind of so my, you know, one of my best friends, David Purdue, who I started with, I left, you know, I'm gone doing great things. He's doing great things. I come back. He's the king of the city. He's the gatekeeper of the town. I'm like, oh, shoot. Excuse me, big dog. Right. Um, so that's one. And then two, a lot of comics who I started with have faded off. And, were, you know, it's kind of this new breed over the last few years coming in. And I was like, oh, well, I got to let y'all know who I am. So I remember just from like 2015 to 2016, like every stage I was trying to burn to the ground to quickly remind the scene of who I was and tell them who I am if they didn't know me. And I think in that moment, in that year of trying to reacclimate in the city, I feel like I really began to figure out who I wanted to be as a comic. Like, you know, the first few years, you're sounding like your favorite comics. You're like a, a sponge, a duplicate yep. degree. Uh, I remember, you know, the first year somebody, uh, David, actually, he kind of coined me as, you know, you're a great blend of Jim Gaffigan and Kevin Hart. And so there's this relatable, chunky bits with energy type of like cognizant I was working with. But anyway, I think in that moment, that 2015, 26 time frame where I was starting from scratch in the city that I love, trying to make a name for myself, I really began to figure out, oh, this is this is who I want to be on stage and off stage. And I feel good and proud about it. Do you think if you would have started in North Texas or Louisiana, you'd have been a different comedian than if you, I mean, how you ended up in Atlanta? Without a doubt. I definitely do. I think on one end, just the relationships alone and the people I was around pushing each other, 
I didn't I didn't have that until I got to Atlanta. So that's already one. Like the way we worked in Bust Out Tail to hit the same mics, to give each other tags, to sit down at coffee shops and write. I didn't have that community anywhere else. Um, and then two, you know, with all due respect, Atlanta compared to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and Shreveport, in my opinion, it's it's night and day as far as diversity. Um, and, and so that and those different type of rooms, the different type of comics, different type of point of views, all that, you know, is shaping you in, in, in different ways. So I'm forever grateful that I started in A. I ask a lot of people this question, like specifically guys from the Midwest, like for Atlanta. And I'm, I'm very curious about this. Atlanta's scene is it's got such a good reputation. Are you guys aspiring to go to New York City or L.A. or are you like, no, we're good? Yeah, we're good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there is, don't get me wrong. I think there's definitely still that. This is a great question. Uh, so a couple of things. One, I think I firmly believe that Atlanta's the top five comedy scene in the country. That's one. Two, I also think that the mandatoriness of moving to L.A. and New York is no longer there right. um, for a few reasons. I think one social media and the online world, right? Literally, you can blow up in the middle of nowhere with your cell phone. Um, so that's one, right? And that's just the reality of it. Two, the scene is just so fire. The scene, the clubs, the connection, um, the the literal, if you want to tour, you got the Delta headquarters, you've got Florida, you got the Southeast, you're eight hours from Chicago. Like it's not, like it's in a great spot as well. I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, also production, TVs and movies have over the last five years have produced so much more entertainment here as well. So, yeah, it is it is no longer this cloud of absolutely when I first started in 2020 before going to China. Oh, yeah, that cloud was thick. And I was thinking about it as a young husband and young father. But now, like even when I came back in 2016 and I, you know, was getting in, I was like, oh, yeah, because I, I went full time. Um, in 2018, you know, in, in Atlanta. And I, and I think the last thing I'll say about it um, uh, and give it back to you is, so there's, I think the trade, I need to start trademarking stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, right. So there's, this is, this is my own thought. I, I think there's seven C's. It's probably more, but there's seven C's when you talk about making money as a comedian. And a lot of times when you start at the beginning, you're only thinking about the comedy club because that's what you want. That's what you know. That's where you think comedy only really happens. But you're trying to be, you know, a person who's trying to make money in general to make people laugh, which is a bigger picture than just stand up. You're like, okay, where, where are all the opportunities to make money to make people laugh? No particular order, no particular preference. You have comedy clubs, corporate colleges. Then you have Churches, cruises, casinos, country clubs. And so in these seven C's, um, nobody take that. In these seven <laughs> C's, you know, there's so much opportunity to make money. So if you're in Tulsa, if you're in Seattle, if you're in San Fran, if you're in, you know what I'm saying, uh, Philly, wherever you are, there's colleges, there's country clubs, you know, there's like there's there's stuff around you and there's stuff you're willing to travel to to make money to be a comic. Now, sure. The comedy club is the long con Thursday through Saturday night, name in the marquee, selling merch, all that. Who doesn't want that? But also, as you're on the way there, go ahead and make your thousand dollars doing a corporate gig so that you can do the fun gig for one hundred fifty dollars at the bar. I have a whole workshop in my head that I'm trying to get together. I, I think the business side of stand up is something that a lot of comics don't talk 
about enough, don't know about enough. And I'm not a guru. I'm just sharing what I know, sharing what I've been taught. Um, And I think it's a really important aspect as comedians to continue to learn more about. Well, I think for me, you know, I do a lot of my work on the production side. Mm. And, you know, I produce shows all over New York and I Mm. host them and I'm booked other places. So I'm getting on stage for shows like 14, 15 a month, which is great up here. But like a lot of that work is done on the production side. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people up here don't like to do the business aspect. Yeah. I found that in upstate New York, the way you can make money doing comedy is on the business side. Mm-hmm. So I'll do it. If you don't do it, I'll do it. I got I'll it. Figure yeah. out a way to get people on stage. I'll be the conduit there. You're right. Like a lot of people overlook certain aspects of, okay, well, I can do this or I can do the club. Well, you can do both. Yeah. But you've got to do the little stuff to get there. Got to do the little stuff to get there. What I like so much about, like, I love having a full-time job and insurance and everything. Part of what I like most about doing like gig work is putting the pieces together mm. and like, okay, well, I have to work a little bit harder maybe, but I'm still going to get rent. So yeah. I'll be okay. And yeah. well, I like the challenge. I like the game. Sure. 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 Yeah. It's it's really, I mean, there's so many killers on stage. That's great. But if you've got 200 killers on stage, what's setting you apart off the stage? Right. You know, are you going to send that email? Is it going to be a professional email? Are you going to have the press kit? Are you going to follow up when they don't respond in three weeks? Like those small things can separate or put you ahead. Maybe the comic is, quote unquote, better than you at the moment in your career. But you've got the extra business side or you've got the intangibles or you just got the hunger and the effort. Boom, you might get that gig. I just got an email yesterday. It was off like an Eventbrite response. And and it just said, I'm a comedian looking for stage help. I'm like, I don't know who you are. So like, like you couldn't have attached something like how about a clip? You know, it's like, okay. I, the only reason I have the name is because it's in the email address. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't even get your name, pal. Yeah. So it's like, there a lot of people just do things completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. He might be super funny. Maybe funnier than me, but like, dude, you're not helping your cause. Not helping your cause, man. Okay. Now I'm convinced I've got to, I got to work on his workshop. (laughs) <laughs> comedy class there's your 8c there it is <laughs> <laughs> i'll trademark that uh no so i ask him this too and i think it's a great question but or a fun one at least do you remember the worst set you've ever had or a couple of them absolutely the worst set i ever had to this day is from year one um still and it was with my well, my great friend yet again david Purdue. a lot of adventures with david <laughs> um it's his uncle his uncle asked us to do his high school reunion, strike one. We should have known off top. Uncle was already 70, okay? That was problematic. <laughs> that was problematic. We pull up to the venue. We're, we're unseasoned, untrained, not great comics here. We probably have eight minutes of material. And we get to the get to the building in the parking lot. We see a few type of cars. We see Cutlass Supremes, Cadillac DeVille's, just old school aunties and uncle type cars. We see a... We see a, a local transportation van with wheelchair accessibility machine on the side. I'm like, all right, this is strike two right here. We get inside. Nobody's expecting comedy. The lights are up. Kango hats are going. They got earth, wind, and fire popping. Oxtails and meatballs are flowing. Everybody's going to have a good night. They haven't seen each other in 25 years. And they are not ready for these 25-year-old suck MCs telling me bits about Digimon and what it's like to be single. They don't want it. And I bomb 
disgustingly for 12 minutes. I sweat through both of my shirts. I give the mic to David. He's struggling. But this is where this is where the story becomes a story because of two last things. Um, not only does the set go terrible, and by terrible, I mean there, there are people, the room is 200, 300 people in the room. Lights are up. Nobody was expecting it. Ambush Comedy 101. Everybody's angry. And these are uncles and aunties. So at this time, I'm 25. These people are 55 to 70, right? 55, 65, 60, 65. These are uncles and aunties to me right here. And the physical disdain, Mike, that I saw on their face, that we were interrupting their party. (laughs) We were interrupting their event to tell unfunny jokes to them. It was palpable. You could just taste it in the air. And so I, all I had was one grandma who was rocking with me in the front row. Just she was just do your thing, baby. And I just talked to her for 11 minutes. And there were men behind me. Anytime I would turn to look as if they thought I was going to like try to roast them or do crowd work. They just go, no, nah, young blood. And I just turn right back around. <laughs> I just turn right back around and just keep talking to the granny. And so I run off looking for something to emotionally eat. I get some meatballs. I'm chilling, minding my business, listening to David Baum. And two older gentlemen walk up to me. Older gentlemen walk up to me and tall dude, short dude. Tall dude says, hey, my friend, the short dude, my friend said, you should quit comedy. Now, I'm a respectful person. These are my elders. So I just say thank you. Thank you for that information. Thank you, sir. Uh, (laughs) And then these two guys move to the corner of the room and start talking to two women. They haven't talked. I don't, I don't know the last time they've seen each other, Mike, maybe since high school. Right. So who knows the connection they're having on this special night? Two older men talking to these two older women. I promise you, I hear verbatim. I hear one, the short dude. He leans over to one of the ladies and he says, hey, Darlene, do you still squirt? And at that moment, I knew I had made a bad decision thinking about being a professional stand-up comic. I was like, this is not the life I want. I've got a degree. I'm a father. And that was probably one of the few nights, few legitimate nights in 12 years of comedy. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I drove back with David. We were so quiet and sad and humbled. Like, I think we just, we bought like $40 worth of things at that Taco Bell. Like it was so, just so such a sad night. But I think about that once a year. And that was that's probably my worst set ever. Man. Worst, worst night of comedy ever. I wish it was only my bad nights that I spent $40 at Taco Bell, by the way. My life would be way better if way better. I went there when I was sad. <laughs> <laughs> my God. So at what point do you say, fuck them? You know, like, I don't care what they say. I'll get them next time. I mean, because obviously like, yeah. you're a year yeah. in. I mean, I, I think if I had heard that, I probably should have heard that. Uh, at a year end. But like, if I had heard that, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. I, to be honest, probably in hindsight, it probably took me too long. It probably, I probably should have hit it uh, if, I, if I was on a living back in China, but I didn't. I didn't do it really feel that way until I got back that 2015, 2016 run where I was trying to burn every stage to the ground. And if you didn't, if you didn't get catch the ashes, that was on you. Like, cause I knew I was bringing heat, right? Cause I was building, you know, I had built up, a, you know, to me, comparatively, 20, 30 minutes from China that year in Texas. So every time I was on that stage in the 2015, 2016 era in Atlanta, I was bringing polished material because I wanted to prove to this new, these newer comics who I was. And so um, at that time, I really kind of had that dust them off your shoulders mentality. Uh, and I haven't looked back since because that's really a muscle 
every artist, but specifically comics, have to know well. How often do you think about that? That set. I mean, is it only when you're asked? Oh no, I think about that set often. I think about that set often. I think about those people in general often. I'm like, where are they at today? And I've tried, you know, I tried years ago. Uh, hopefully, I'm a better comic performer and writer now. So I need to go back and really try it again because I think a great worst worst show bit is always a good bit to have in your arsenal. But I haven't made it. I haven't been able to make it work yet. So I gotta. I need to pull it back out and play with it. I recently I, I pulled this out and I wrote it uh, and it worked really well. But I I had done like a, a contest in Rochester, New York, which is two and a half hours away. And I it was all crowd vote and I didn't do well. I thought my set was okay, but it didn't win. And some older guy came over to me and he goes, mm. Hey, uh, put your stuff, but uh most of it, eh, not for me. And I'm like, oh, all right, you you came over here to tell me that. Like you, I saw you walk across the room to Thank just you be mean to me. <laughs> and he goes, well, it's not your fault. Like, I'm I'm more of a Three Stooges kind of guy. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck am I going to do with that? I turned it into a bit and it works. It's, it's uh, I got a few openers and that's, that usually welcomes the crowd. Uh, yeah. I'm like, oh yeah. So, you know, I hit him in the head with a fucking ladder and mm-hmm. it always hits well. So I'm like, okay. But yeah, I think, I think when you can bring that vulnerability on the stage. Yeah. I mean, it can't really go that badly for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't done it and tried it in years, so I trust that I've, I've uh, improved since then. So I'm excited. I'll bring it back though for sure because it's there's so many elements to it. It just even on the front end of saying yes to gigs and opportunities you're not really ready for. You know, like even just relating about that of lying on the resume, where it's like, oh yeah, I can write a hundred words per minute. Right. Oh yeah. You want you want a spreadsheet? Oh yeah, I can do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> So you got the album coming up. Tell me a little bit more about that. It's coming out, what, March 25th? <sighs> yeah, coming out March 25th. Uh, it's out now, right? It'll be out right, now. Right, yep. yep. <laughs> it's out now. And so um, so it's uh, I know who I am. March 25th is out. Go get it now. Cop that thing with Helium Records. I'm excited about this debut comedy album but for so many reasons, but a few ones I'll just share here. Um, you know, just building that body of work, you know, is something I'm excited about. Building that that look back and be like, man, this, this was a dope comic. You know what I mean? That aspect. Um, and then two, um, I said it earlier, like I was able and uh, blessed to go full-time with comedy in 2018 um, with a couple of the C's. And um, so I was doing that for a few years and the pandemic pops off. I go back into the classroom. But I told my principals, my wife and I, just to be clear here, all of this is none of this is happening without the amazing support of my wife who pushes me and motivates me like no other. But we we, we told the principal that, hey, I'm not coming back. I'm going to just do that and get back to being a full time creator, full time comic. So as a husband and a father, you know, what I'm saying you got to still be wise. So there was this business element of the album as well, where I had all this. Uh, material I was proud of, you know, and then I had a lot of new stuff that I'm proud of as well now. And I was like, oh, what do I put on the album? And I was like, all right, well, now I'm going to leave this comfort of this teaching gig. Let's see how we can maximize this the most financially. Well, this is 2022, right? So we're talking about online streams, plays, spins, right? Sirius, Pandora, et cetera, et cetera. So comparatively, just in general, I'm a cleaner comic, just comparatively to other comics. That's just who authentically who I am from my upbringing. And so I was like, all right, we'll take all the material you're proud of that leans towards that cleaner side that has the chance and more spins, more plays, more stations, and, you know, work that fine tune it, work it over a few months and put that bad boy out. So that's what it is. And the, the last thing I'll say is just, 
Um, I know who I am. I'm, I'm 35. My dad loved being a father, loved being a husband. I know what I want to do with my life. I know who I want to be when I'm on stage and off stage. And so there's there's this element of comfort, right? We talked about that authenticity of being who you are on stage and off stage. Doesn't matter the crowd. And so I'm I'm excited to be in an era where I'm not worried about peer pressure. I'm not worried about if the set doesn't go well. I'm dusting it off because I know who I am and I know that this is a great album. And so I'm excited about it, man. I really am. How do you like doing all the podcasts and the promotion and the PR side? I've been having a blast, to be honest with you. It's been really like, so. also, I'm a cold emailer. That's that's a whole nother workshop. Uh, 98% of what I've gotten in my career has come because I've reached out to people and was like, hey, you're missing out on me. And they've been like, yeah, you're right. Here's a cruise agent. Here's a college agent. Here's these dope shows. Here's, you know, these opportunities that have come, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's how it came about with Helium and all that jazz but uh, there is this this fun element of hopping on these podcasts. This is like my ninth one I've done so far. Got another <laughs> one on a teen booked. But you know, it's kind of the new the new uh, PR circuit. You're not going to hit all the the early morning talk shows and the late night talk shows. You hop on ten to fifteen podcasts in 2022, you'll get in front of some people. It wasn't until I started doing this podcast where I saw the value of actually doing podcasts. I, I guess I, I probably got on like four or five just to talk about my idea. Like, okay, well, I have three episodes out. Please listen. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's an absolute great marketing tool. Like, you just get out there and you're doing, you're actually doing somebody a favor. Like, you are doing me a favor by doing this podcast because I've got to fill content. You know, I have to talk to somebody every week. So <laughs> I love it. And I obviously, there are more perks to that where I get to, I get to meet somebody new and be entertained and hear a story about how two old men try to get you to quit comedy. Like, that's fun for me. But yeah. yeah, it's just, it's a necessary tool, but man, and, and I think I would imagine that just the technology has made just the PR aspect a lot easier than it would have been yeah, yeah. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Without a doubt. Like, you know, I'm not, I was trying to just think of creative ways, you know, not to break the bank. Right. So yeah, I'll have probably some social media ads going the week of maybe the week after, but that's like small things, but like, you know, I've reached out to to so many friends and family about it because you know like statistically only like 10 percent of your followers friends of whatever social media you have see your stuff consistently so if i post hey i got a new album coming out most people who follow me don't know about it so just the day in and day out of dming oh you reached your max day in and day out of dming oh you reached your max there's that every time i make a piece of video content i put you know pre-order uh, stuff on the end of it. So, you know, if something gets 5,000, 10,000 views, even if I get a percentage of them, I'll be like, oh man, that was good. So let me hit this link and at least be intrigued by it. That's nothingness. I made, I made that little, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to, but like literally there's just so many ways for technology. And then the podcasting in general, you know, you do 10 podcasts, shoot, I don't care if they only got uh, 10 people listening. That's a hundred more people who have the chance with me staying in my house Right. Not leaving, not paying. I bought this mic once. I don't have to buy another one. <laughs> um, you know, so there's so many more ways now. But again, that's that's the effort I take pride in. That's that's the hustle. That's those intangibles that if you want it, you got to put in that work. So I'm excited and I appreciate you having me on, man, for sure. What are you most proud of about this album? I mean, I would think that putting together what 50 minutes, an hour worth of material that's on the cleaner side is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, cleaner, clean material is definitely a different 
skill set. I definitely don't think it's uh, a better. I think it's different, right? Different muscle. And so that, that there's element of pride for that for sure. I think I'm just really proud of, you know, that and just continuing this journey. Like so many people haven't completed a lot of things or gotten to a point where they've done something that they've like, yeah, I can put my, I've got, I can show something for this. And now I can forever show that to my kids. Like they know that I've got an album coming out. Those things are special and to my mom and dad who seen me grind. and was like, you sure about that? You know what I'm saying? And things of this nature. Because when you say, yeah, I'm leaving this nice private school gig to get back to doing stand-up, uh, the people you care about, I'm not worried about the extra eyes, but the people you care about, they're like, all right, we believe in you. Uh, you know, <laughs> pause, pause. Yeah. Uh, so there's an element of pride in that for sure. Yeah, both my parents are teachers. And when I told them, because I was coming from journalism, and I'd actually left the newspaper and then started doing Amazon sales and made way more money doing that than, you know, being a print reporter. But when I said, yeah, I, I wanted to start doing stand-up and it wasn't even like, oh, I'm going to leave somewhere right. and make money. They just didn't, they weren't crazy about me going on stage at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. well, you guys are teachers and musicians. Like, don't <laughs> you get it? I'm like, no. And I think, I think they're like, no, we don't want, we don't want you talking about us. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an element of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Were your parents sure. cool with you going on stage? Yeah, yeah, my parents are they're they're pretty cool in general. They are jacks of all trades. They work so hard and hustled so hard for us. They also like, like when we got married in college at 21, we were poor. I was like, yeah, man, let's go do that. We were gonna travel abroad with one kid. I was like, yeah, go get that, make that happen. So their support has always been such an encouragement for me. That's great, man. And I would imagine just having that. <laughs> it sounds so bad, but I don't. I don't have that support. So it's like, it's got to be so much, I don't know, more freeing, but like, just, you've got people who believe in you. So do you work for them in a little bit? Like, okay, well, I don't want to waste their belief on me. Without a doubt, without a doubt for my family and especially my wife and my kids, you know, that, that motivation, like when I, I'm 35, I've been doing this 12 years in October. I'm all about working smarter and not harder. So when I leave this house, I'm losing time with my family. And so the intentionality that I take with everything that I do, I take pride in that. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, this, you got it, dad, and my wife and traveling and, you know, her having to do extra things when I'm not here, like all of that matters. I go do a cruise ship for five days. If I go do a few colleges in the Northeast, like, you know, I'm gone. Somebody else has to pick up my slack that I'm not there. You know, someone was, working extra hard when I was whatever, 17 to yada, yada, yada. The list goes on and on. So that motivation is very real for me and I take it seriously. And it's definitely been a big reason of where I am, where I am now. Do your kids think you're funny? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, definitely, um, I definitely, you know, as a dad, you try to find that balance, man, of having to lay the hammer down and set the rules and then also have that lighter side. So they really get a chance to see it when we're like playing games and in movie nights and I try to be silly with them. Um, but I, um, my wife and I, we run a podcast and they'll occasionally try to like watch a clip or something. Oh my God, it's not really for you. Uh, Cause about me. <laughs> and, uh, and they were watching a few clips of me doing some other stuff online, just like random content online. And my oldest girl was like, Oh dad, I watched it yesterday before school. Ah, so funny. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. It's a very, it's a very, she's seven. It's a very, uh, <laughs> 
a lot of a guy was like me hating on Brussels sprouts. She's like, oh, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> What's the podcast about? Uh, my, my wife and I we have a podcast. It's called Summon Up with the Sumners. Um, but it's really, man, just about uplifting uh, married folks, specifically if I get real niche. Um, you know, we'll be married for 14 years and the low hanging fruit. And a lot of times you'll see and hear stand up sitcoms, you know, playfully, sometimes, sometimes not uh, bash and destroy marriage, their husband, their spouse. Uh, don't get it twisted. You know, all good things require hard work, but we love being married. And we think there's uh, a lot of people who enjoy it as well. Even if you don't, we want to encourage you and uplift you um, because you made that decision. You can leave, but you also can stay and fight for it. Um, so yeah, it drops every Tuesday. Sum it up with the Sumners. We talk, we talk all things marriage. Um, and it's it's a good time. It's been dope actually working with her in that capacity, you know, uh as a as a spouse, having never worked together like that. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Has it made your marriage better? It has made our marriage better better. I definitely think that one, you know, we're both dream chasers, we're both ambitious. Um, and so we are excited and eager and optimistic. Podcast is a whole nother world. Um, it's not a C, it's a P, but um, <laughs> eight C's and a P. And so, you know, that's a whole world of opportunity. You know, she's trying to get out of her job. She does fitness and yada, yada. So it's an opportunity to kind of make this into something. So we're kind of actually trying to become business and brand owners, yada, yada, as a team. Um, and then it's also just led to great conversation. Like it has sparked a lot of ideas um, just for our real marriage. Is she a comic too? She's definitely not a comic. She's definitely not. And I say definitely not in the sense of like, she has no desire. She did a stand-up class like for a favor for a friend. Like, yeah, I'll help you out. I'll do it. The, the comic's great. No worries. But like, she's like, no, I have no desire to get there 30 minutes early, wait 90 minutes, get on stage for two minutes and go home. I have no desire. Yeah, leave that to you. <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for this. It's, it's so much fun getting to know you. Man, I appreciate it, man. Like like I said, uh, these podcasts have been fun, and this one has not been different. It definitely getting a chance when people ask different questions. I, I am. I'm just grateful for the journey I've been on because that's the best thing about stand-up is, is the journey. Like, you know, shoot, you look at Rock, Chappelle, all your favorites, like, they're still just on a – they're on the same – they're on the same journey, different mountain, but, like, you're constantly going. And so this, is, this has been great, man. I appreciate it. Well, best of luck with the album and again, man, uh, and the podcast, but it's great getting to know you and God, man, good luck with everything. And remember, Annie, Chris Rock, go there, uh, eat your ice cream. Yeah, I'm locked in. <laughs> Dude, appreciate I appreciate it, brother. No problem, man. I'll talk to you in a bit. For sure. Peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I hope they let me in.